few weeks ago, I was having breakfast with uh, my son Dominic. I think Ephraim was upstairs. And, uh, Dominic is five years old. He's playing in the corner. And um, we were having a conversation, and this is what you do. It's amazing to have a child who can talk back to you. And um, sometimes they ask you questions you're not really prepared for. And, and this day, he asked me, Daddy, are we living in a movie? And I was like, huh, that's a, that's a really deep question. And like most mornings, we were running a little late, and so I could have just said, like, oh, no, and move on, and like, let's just go ahead and finish your breakfast, finish your breakfast, finish your breakfast. But I did not. I was like, okay, I want to affirm this. I want to affirm this, this thinking, thinking out of the box, and, and so I'll, I'll acknowledge. But yeah, um, that's a really good question. You always know when someone says a really good question, that's because they don't know what to say. It's a filler. <laughs> so any time you interview someone, they say, that's a really good question. That's because they don't know what they're going to say. So I said, that's a really good question. I'll stop there. Well, you know, Dominic, we are not living in a movie. And it may seem like we are, because it kind of looks like a movie. You see people kind of like in a movie, and, and things happen. There's two important distinctions between reality and a movie. And the, one distinction is about God. The fact that God is not just really far away looking down on us and watching us and viewing us from a distance as we are when we watch a movie. And the other distinction is that we are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the story. It doesn't all revolve around us. But that is a trap for so many people we fall into that we assume that the world revolves around us. And it can be damaging in a lot of different directions. One especially has to do with the other people in our lives. Our other people in our lives are not just extras on, on our movie scene. They aren't just like supporting characters there to make our star shine brighter. Um, that's, that is a misconception about reality, but it's kind of easy to fall into this narcissistic trap that the people in our lives are just objects that we use to better ourselves. And it reminds me of, of a, a character in a novel. I'm going to geek out a little bit, so just bear with me. I feel like I have, after, after two years, I have the space. Um, in, the, in the fifth book of George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire, there's a character named Quentin Martell. He does not take place. He is not transferred over to the, the TV show. He only exists in the book. And I've been, I've been reading these books for, for many years, since about 1996. And so I, had a, I picked up this method of reading. Each of the chapters in the books are uh, from a different point of view. And so I had characters I liked and characters I didn't like. And so I would read the point of views of the characters I liked. And if I found the character boring, I'd just skip it over. and like read to the end. It's like, oh, there's the big reveal. Got it. Moving on. Um, and so the first time I read through, I read through Quentin. I was like, who is this guy? He's so boring. Nothing happens. He just goes all this way and then he dies, and that's it. And I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And it took many years later that I realized that something really complex was going on with this character, Quentin Martell. It was a, a meta critique of fantasy literature in general. And what that means is it was, it was kind of like stepping behind and looking back at what is all that is going on in these kind of stories of swords and princesses and dragons. And this idea of that some people use this language called plot armor. So plot armor is this idea that there are characters in a story that can't die because the plot would be ruined. And so like think about Luke Skywalker in the first Star Wars. Like he's not gonna die in that one. It's like it's not it wouldn't happen. The movie would cease 
to continue. And it can happen, you know, if in a romantic comedy, if one of the partners just dies randomly, like, the movie's over. There's no more movie. And so they have their own kind of plot armor. Sorry, back to Quinn. I'm almost done with this. It's okay. Thank you. This is, this is my Father's Day privilege. Um, and so, so Quentin goes and keeps on getting rejected. He starts his adventure late. Most of the people in his party are already dead, but he keeps on going because he thinks this is what he needs to do. He's been told that he is going to marry the princess. He's been told that he is going to be the king. He doesn't really want it. He doesn't want to defeat the bad guys. He doesn't want to marry the princess. He wants to go back to his garden. But he's been told over and over again that this is what he needs to do, and he feels like he has to be the hero, and he's going to be the hero, and that the story is going to protect him. And he goes, and he gets rejected by the princess one last time, and he's like, no, but I was told I need to be the hero. And he keeps on being told that he's going to be the center of the story. And so he, he find, negotiates with these like, really wicked mercenaries, and they sneak into the castle, and they get before the dragon. He thinks, I'm going to tame the dragon. I'm going to do it. Because it's, it's what I need to do because I'm the center of the story. And then he comes to the horrible realization that he is not the center of the story. And that he doesn't have this plot armor. He doesn't have this protection. The dragon is going to be the dragon. And the dragon breathes his fire. And Quentin dies. And Quentin dies. And I think it's so, what's so powerful for me about that is this kind of this idea that transfers from, from these fantasy novels to, to real life is that when we act like we are the center of the universe, when we act like nothing can harm us, nothing can go wrong, that's when life starts falling apart. My friends, we're continuing today in our series on the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible and it's usually kind of seen as a last afterthought for a lot of people or it's seen as the most important thing for a lot of people. I encourage you to, again, let go of your preconceptions of this book. This is a book about our identity. Revelation is what is being revealed. It's literally that. It's like, I'm going to reveal something to you. It's like, haha, a phone. That's revelation. <laughs> Apocalypse just means revelation in Greek. It is about our identity. What is the source of your identity? And today, uh, one of my teachers reminded of one of the things one of my teachers said, and it's really apropos for this day. He's, Stanley Hauerwas once said, the project of modernity was to produce people who believe they should have no story except the story they choose when they have no story. Okay, well, you know someone has been to seminary when they say the word modernity. <laughs> and this is a complicated thought, but I, I, wanna, I will say it again, and I want to unpack it, because I think it's super important for us to understand, especially with this book. The project of modernity was to produce people who believe they have no story except the story they choose when they have no story. The, what's important about this is the realization there's no null point for us where we get to pick our story. In the same way, like there wasn't a point for Quentin to pick what kind of story he had. The project of modernity is to say that each one of us is the center of the universe. Each one of us has the power to pick our own story no matter what. And so we have these six billion centers of the universe kind of clashing against each other in conflict for resources. In grade school, it may be conflict for uh, positions in college. There's only a few openings, so we're all in conflict against each other. Conflict for top of the class. For many people, it's in conflict. There's only a few number of eligible partners. And so it's like the, these, these individual centers of the universe bumping up against each other. 
each thinking that they are what matters in this world because they are the ones who choose, they are the ones who consume, they are the ones who get to tell their own story no matter what, no matter the consequences to everyone else in the world. This competition is constant. And the competition is very similar to what was going on in the Roman Empire at this time. In the early church in the first century AD, Rome swept across, had already swept across much of the modern world, much of the ancient world, I mean. Uh, They had been an empire for almost 150 years, 100 years at that time. And they had claimed all these stories. They claimed these mythologies. They claimed these nations. They took the menorah from out of the temple in Jerusalem. They claimed the Jewish story true. It was part of the Roman story. They would say, you are a slave and you are a citizen. And people should be grateful for that. They said, you only have freedom if you are a Roman. That is the only freedom you can have. It's the freedom to appeal to the emperor and the freedom not to starve. Because Romans gave out free bread. They did. It's a really complicated, ancient, amazing thing. You can go into ancient Rome or Egypt and there's these giant, giant ovens for the free bread for the citizens. And they gave that out. And the people thought that they were content with that. That that was enough. That they were being told, this is what freedom is. This is what freedom is. Rome has chosen you. Rome has chosen you and claimed you. But it is a lie. It is a lie. It is not ultimately life-giving. And we see that falling apart in this really complicated passage from the book of Revelation that J.D. read a while ago. You remember there was a throne and there were some jewels and a lot of other things. But let's focus on the throne. We see it, it falling apart, all these images falling apart, all these ideas of what story we can have, what our future can be when we see who sits on the throne. And the one who sits on the throne is not the emperor. It's not the conqueror. It is a lamb. It is a lamb who was slain. As Richard Bauckham says, the creator and the lamb are the theological center of the book of Revelation. And the vision of chapter 4 of Revelation puts them at the heart of the created order. So we see with this vision what is at the heart of all creation. And what is at the heart of all creation is not swords, is not an army, is not a person in Rome, is not even free bread. It is people singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. We've been having communion every week, and every week you all sing, Holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty. For those who come on Christmas Eve, every Christmas Eve is the same reading from Luke 2. And it includes the saying of the shepherds going out by their flocks at night, and the heavenly host appears singing, Holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty. And then there's so many other images going on here. There's so many images of gems, of jewels, of jasper, and emerald. And there's one throne with the lamb. And then there's 24 thrones surrounding it. And there's seven flames and the seven spirits of God. And we have all these images. And it seems like so overwhelming. And some people have chosen that they're going to figure out each of these images. And what each image means. And what they can possibly mean. And they'll have the answer. And they'll figure it out. But I think it should be overwhelming for us. Like when you read it, you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? (laughs) There's so many images here. Because I think that is the whole point. The point is to overwhelm us because the presence of God is overwhelming. The presence of God is overwhelming and cannot be contained in one image. 
They cannot be contained in one idea. They can be written down on this book. This is what all that symbolic structure, all that vividness of imagery is, is to show us the magnificence of the presence of God. And the elders on the throne, we see the elders, they are not angels. They are presbyters. They may be priests. They may be just people who are longer in age than others. And so it's the same word. Um, There's a place for us. That's the point of the 24 thrones. There is a place for us in the presence of God. That we are not denied that, depending on where we were born, on what we have done, on how we have behaved. We are not denied that. There is a place for us with God, and there's a place for us now where we can sing that same hymn, Holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty. This is why we share the table together. This is why we join with the heavenly host, singing Holy, Holy, Holy. We're not singing to God. We're singing with, with those who have come before, with the angels in heaven. We sing along with the elders of heaven. We are given space in the drama of creation in this simple song. We're contingent beings in a broken world, and yet we matter to God. Not just in our future, but here today. And what is so important for us to remember is that Revelation shows us a spoiler about the end of history. We know who wins, it's not hidden. In this book, the victory of Christ is not hidden. It's not like an afterthought. It's not like a drama. It's like, who's going to win in the end? There's not a mystery, a murder mystery going on. We see in the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 1, about Christ's victory. We see here in chapter 4, we see about the reality. We see who has already won. And it's, it's, it's a struggle to us sometimes because in this broken world, we have all these conflicting images on top of that. We have the challenges of life. We have tragedies we face. We have ambiguities about our future and about where our future will be. And we see, we see this table at communion. We see <coughs> communion itself. We see this bread and we see this juice and it looks just like a little piece of bread and a little juice and it doesn't seem like much. It doesn't seem like much. And yet, like the mustard seed in Mark, it is going to be enormous. This is a mustard seed. You probably can't see it. Unless you have, like, ex- well, there's a lot, of, a lot of ex-Air Force people here. See my It's really small. It's really small. Um, this is what Mark is talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. This little thing grows into a bush about the size of this pulpit. Sometimes even bigger. It is going to grow. And even though it looks insignificant, there is great power there. There is a great future there. And even when we feel insignificant as individuals, even when we feel like we do not matter, or we do not matter to the right people, Or in the end, it doesn't matter that we even existed. There is more for us. Those feelings do not define who we are. Where we come from does not define who we are. You are loved. You are loved and you are forgiven. The book of Revelation from beginning to end does not hide Christ's victory. 
It is never in doubt. There is not a moment when it seems like the forces of wickedness are finally going to prevail. Ultimately, the forces of wickedness are impotent next to the power of Christ. The drama of faith is not found in the destination we have, but in the journey. We all know where we are going to end up. Not necessarily what it is going to look like. For that, we are given images upon images upon images. We are given seats of jasper and seas of crystal, which seems so contrasting to our reality that we should be reminded that our presence with God is not going to look like this life just continued on in perpetuity. It will be different. It will be glorious. But the drama is not found in our future, but in our present and how we are going to take our understanding of our future with God and live it now. (coughs) Live a life of hope now. Live a life of peace now. Live a life of love now. Live a life of holiness. Holiness is one of those big, super churchy words, but it's a really simple word. Holiness just means something set apart. Like this mustard seed is set apart from the other mustard seeds. That's what something holy is. When In the Old Testament, when Moses sees the burning bush, he takes, God says to him, take off your feet. For this is holy ground. This is not normal ground. Something different is going on here. What is set apart in your life? That is what the question of holiness is. Do you have part of your life that is set apart? Is it set apart for God? Is it set apart for others? Is it set apart that it is not? This is not the same thing. I am not the same. I am not the center of the universe, but that does not mean God has not created something special. You are not the center of the universe, but that does not mean that you are not something special. Someone special with a special purpose, with special relationships. Christ includes us in the story of redemption. We are not left as remainders in God's story. Let us not stand on the sidelines. Let us jump in with all that we have. In a few, um, in a little bit near the end of the service, there's going to be someone join the church today. And part of that is going to be a, we're going to ask them, will you support this church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? And I want to use that. I think it's a nice structure to think of ways that we have in the life of God and life of faith. So let us jump in with our prayers. And what does it mean to jump in with our prayers? Let us jump in knowing that God seeks to have conversation with us. That God seeks us out. Having faith that God is there for us. And our prayers are not in vain. Let us jump in with our presence, with being present for other people in our lives. With being as concerned for other people in our lives as we are for ourselves. With being present to fulfill the commitments we have in this life with not being afraid of making more commitments because we know God is protecting us. God is looking out for us. Let us jump in with our gifts, with our spiritual gifts as well as our gifts of generosity, as the gift of giving financially to what matters in our life, knowing that we don't need to build up storehouses on this earth because they ultimately will fade away and not protect us. Let us jump in with our service, with our willingness to serve others for God. Let us jump in with our willingness to receive service from others. To not think we are so far above the people in our lives that we refuse offers of help. Let us receive peace from other people. Let us realize we don't need to be right. We are not the center of the universe. Let us humbly 
seek out reconciliation in this life. As well, let us jump in with our witness. With our willingness to point to the one who sits upon the throne, who's not the emperor, who's not the CEO, not the president, not the governor, not not even the bishop. The lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ. I think it's so wonderful to sing Faith of Our Fathers on Father's Day because it's not actually about fathers, um, but it has the word father in it, so it's really easy to... It's about, it's about the early church. It's about the people of the early church. And about, you know, the first, the first verse talks about dungeons. Um, and it's the people who are martyred, who are witnesses to the faith. And thinking about both the people in the early church, the first disciples, but also the witnesses to the faith in your life. Who are, who, is the fa- who are the fathers and mothers of your faith? They are still with you. They have shaped you. They witnessed to you, or else you would not be here. How can you jump in and witness in the way they did? Witness to the lamb that was slain. That we can sing together with the heavenly host, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We can sing that now. And that, like this little mustard seed, we are going to grow. We are going to grow in that our life, even when we feel as insignificant as a mustard seed, is going to grow because God is with us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.